Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week shows a double feature. We'll start off with a talk by Fran Ulmer, chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. She's held several public positions in Alaska, including lieutenant governor and state representative. Her presentation is titled, After the Arctic Ice Melts. It was recorded on January 31st at 49th State Brewing Company and was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. Finishing off this episode, we have a piece from KZMU Moab Public Radio about how the warming Arctic can have far-reaching effects on ecosystems across the globe. We'll begin with Fran Ulmer. Thank you all for coming tonight to talk about the Arctic. Uh, we live in Alaska, so we care about it. But what I want to talk to you about tonight is why everybody should care about the Arctic. So my plan is, first we'll talk a little bit about what's changing, and then we'll talk about how that change is really impacting people who live in the Arctic and then outside the Arctic. And then let's explore this question of the geopolitics of the region. Uh, we'll talk about how this region geopolitically is becoming much more interesting to the world and why that is. If you look at how much change has already happened in our lifetimes, it's really pretty stunning how much sea ice loss we have experienced. Now, most of you have probably heard a lot about this already, but what is stunning to me is how different, if you think about it in hundreds of years versus just the last 30 years, we are in an entirely different regime. And it's not just the summertime when there's the least amount of ice, it's also in the wintertime, which we experienced last year pretty dramatically in the Bering Sea. Unfortunately, there are many, many animals that need that ice, ice-dependent species, that have evolved over a very long period of time that are reliant on that sea ice. So yes, you know about polar bears, but also walrus and ring seals and arctic cod and many, many others. In addition to less sea ice, of course, there are much warmer temperatures. And we've experienced that for at least the last 20 or 30 years. But what's happening here is really completely out of bounds with what's happening globally. More than two and a half times as warm as what is happening globally. We're losing glaciers. About 95% of all of the glaciers in the Arctic are in retreat. And of course, the Greenland ice sheet is a tremendous concern because not only is it melting, but the rate of melt is accelerating and it is contributing to sea level dramatically. And then there is permafrost. This kind of surprises most people that about a quarter of the northern hemisphere is underlain with permafrost. And that permafrost is showing signs of thawing in many of the places where we've measured it, which of course leads to a very unstable situation in terms of coastlines and for infrastructure, but also it has some serious implications in terms of additional global warming because of the release of methane. I'm sure you've all heard about ocean acidification. The problem is that in the Arctic, because the water is cold, it absorbs even more CO2. So here, more than in many other places, we are already beginning to experience ocean acidification that has a tremendous impact on many, many species that rely on a certain stable balance of chemistry of the ocean. So what difference does that make for the people of the Arctic? Obviously, 
There are many, many answers to that question. It depends upon where you live and who you are. But for the indigenous people of the North particularly, who have relied upon many of those same species that are ice dependent, that are no longer safely relying on that sea ice, it has a big implication in terms of subsistence foods and culture. For the people of the Arctic, there are two main impacts that we see on a regular basis. One is the subsistence and the fact that food insecurity is caused by less sea ice and all of the creatures that rely on it. And secondly, a pretty dramatic change in terms of coastal communities that are experiencing so much more coastal erosion. So between permafrost thawing, which destabilizes infrastructure, the culture, the subsistence, food security, the safety, all of those things are incredibly important to the people of the North, as are, of course, the damages that are being experienced in the villages because of thawing permafrost and coastal erosion. A recent report from the University of Alaska pointed out how much that's likely to cost the state of Alaska. We're talking about big numbers, not just for the village communities that are experiencing the coastal erosion and the need to move, but also for urban infrastructure, for the pipeline, which of course was constructed with certain assumptions about whether or not the permanent permafrost would stay stable. Not so much anymore. And then there's the impact of ocean acidification on our fishing communities, which is another study that the University of Alaska did, looking at which communities were actually likely to get the most negative impact associated with damage to fisheries because of ocean acidification. So what about people beyond the Arctic, people who have never even been to the Arctic, people who aren't even sure what the Arctic's all about? There are a lot of ways in which less ice in the Arctic and a warmer Arctic is impacting them, whether they know it or not. And here are just a few examples of what difference it really makes, regardless of where you live, that there is a lot less ice and a warmer Arctic. So in a way, you could think of the Arctic as the planet's air conditioner. It helps stabilize climate in a variety of ways. But if you just think about all of that sea ice that used to exist, that is to say when the ice was a white blanket on the top of our planet, reflecting and, and sending back some of that solar energy, now that dark water and dark land where there's less snow, less ice, is absorbing that energy, adding to the heat of not only the Arctic but to the planet. And as we are seeing, in addition to that effect, we are seeing as destabilization of the jet stream. So a warmer Arctic means that there is less of a temperature differential between the Arctic and mid-latitudes. And Jennifer Francis and other atmospheric scientists would be the first to tell you that the science is not fully understood on exactly how this is working. However, it is increasingly clear that a warmer Arctic is leading to this phenomenon. You've been reading about the polar vortex in the lower 48, right? So what is happening is a lot of the cold air that should be up here is going south, and a lot of the warmer air witnessed yesterday's melt is staying here. And as a result of that, these longer periods of time of either cold or heat or rain or even stale air in China 
leading to more intense problems associated with air pollution. This was a, a Chinese study done a couple of years ago. It is something that is increasingly of concern, not just in the Arctic, not just in the United States, but globally. Another way in which less ice in the Arctic and a warmer Arctic is of concern to people who don't live here is, of course, sea level rise. And the tricky thing about sea level rise is it's happening faster. The rate of sea level rise is accelerating. And a huge contributor to that is the Greenland ice sheet. So the Greenland ice sheet is actually contributing more to sea level rise now than Antarctica is. That may not always be the case, but it is now. So as you can probably read, a huge amount of what's contributing right now to sea level rise is thermal expansion. And again, as our oceans warm, that will continue to be a problem. And as we lose more and more ice from the Greenland ice sheet, that will continue to be a problem. It's a problem today, but when you look ahead at the projections of how much sea level rise is likely by the end of this century, about a meter is in the conservative range, that's a lot of Miami Beach underwater. But we don't have to wait till then, it's now. So military installations, like the Navy station in Norfolk, Virginia, that's experiencing a lot of sea level rise and constant flooding right now. This is of concern to the military. You probably saw the report this week, the Department of Defense assessment of how many of the military establishments around our nation are at risk, at risk from floods, at risk from fires, at risk from drought. This is a serious concern. The military, the Department of Defense, particularly the Navy, but others as well, have really upped their attention level on the extent to which a warmer Arctic is contributing to not only problems like we've just been discussing, but also the potential for more interaction in a region that previously was not considered accessible. So it's like having a brand new ocean. And what does that mean to humans? Well, of course, it means economic opportunity. So shipping and fishing and mining and oil and gas and tourism are now very hot topics globally in terms of things that, well, how about the Arctic? And of course, as we also know, the demand for resources and the whole notion of let's go find something that hasn't been found before. It's always been part of the human idea that there's always another frontier, and now it's the Arctic. So the global attention and the accessibility are combining to really create an energy level that we have never seen before about international attention to this region. We hear a lot about shipping, and, and there's, a, there's a, a lot that can be said about how much of that is hype and how much of that is reality. But let's start with the basics. There are two routes, the Northern Sea Route above Russia, the Northwest Passage above Canada, and the Northern Sea Route right now is the route that is getting more of the traffic between the two, and that's largely because Russia is actively promoting the Northern Sea Route and because Russia has natural resources in the north that they want to get to market. So the promotion is really, well, the Northeast Passage or the Northern Sea Route is shorter. So if it's shorter, that must mean that it would be a better route than the Suez Canal. That is the pitch. But from an Alaska perspective, look at this choke point. The Bering Strait, only 50 miles across between Alaska 
and Russia, regardless of whether you're talking about the Northern Sea Route or the Northwest Passage, is in our backyard. And it's a place where a risk unquestionably exists, not only from the standpoint of relations with Russia, from the standpoint of possible disasters, oil spills, et cetera, but also because the Bering Strait is a marine mammal migration route of considerable importance. And as we know, the marine mammals of the North using that Bering Strait is possibly in conflict with a lot more shipping going through the Bering Strait. So it's, it's definitely a concern. We've already seen for the first time in history a container ship using the Northern Sea Route going across Russia. And although I don't expect there are going to be a lot of those in the near future, there are a lot more LNG tankers because, of course, of Russia's oil and gas. Tourism has also expanded in the north pretty dramatically, particularly in Svalbard and Norway and Greenland, but also all the way to the North Pole. I had the opportunity to go to the North Pole in the summer of 2017 on a Russian nuclear icebreaker, which at the time was the largest and most powerful icebreaker in the world. Subsequent to that, Russia has, has built and now put in the water two that are larger and more powerful. Uh, but it was quite an experience, particularly being able to go up in a hot air balloon on the north. You know, I mean, you get the feel, right? This is exciting. So there's going to be a lot more tourism because people want adventure. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. We continue the show with the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, Fran Ulmer, and her presentation titled, After the Arctic Ice Melts. So let's talk about oil and gas. This is one of the other things that, of course, has really attracted a lot of attention in the media and a lot of attention by people who are really on both sides of this question. Yes, there should be development in the north, and the oil is there, so let's do it and people who feel strongly that this is one of the riskier places to do oil and gas development and it shouldn't ever be done there. There are lots of opinions about it, but the reason it's a topic is because USGS says that there's a lot of oil and gas left in the Arctic, and so that attracts attention. Whether or not to drill, whether or not to balance the risk and the revenues and how to do that uh, obviously depends upon your assessment of whether you have the equipment the expertise, the knowledge, and the ability to do it safely. I would just note that the countries of the North come down on all sides of that. So Canada has said, no, we're not going to do more oil and gas development in the Arctic. Norway, on the other hand, has said, yes, we think we can do it safely, and they are expanding their leasing in the Barents Sea. The US, we go back and forth, don't we? We have said, no, we don't want to do oil development in the north, and then we say yes, and then we say no, and now we're back to yes again. So, um, you know, stay tuned. And the Russians are bullish on oil and gas development, particularly the Yamal Peninsula, where they have so much resource. This, this chart sort of explains why an awfully lot of the discovered oil and gas fields in the north are in Russian territory. And 95% of Russian natural gas reserves are in the Arctic. So of course, it's not surprising that Russia sees this as a very important part of their economy and a very important part of their future, particularly the LNG projects on the Yamal Peninsula. Um, and I might note that the partnership between China and Russia 
in developing these natural gas uh, reserves. Uh, we're already seeing it. So China is using some of their silk road fund, which they now have a polar silk road fund, uh, to support these, this new shipping partnership uh, with China, China and Russia, to be able to take LNG to Asia and to Europe. So uh, let's talk about China for a moment. China has declared itself a near Arctic state. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but they have adopted a policy statement. They have an Arctic policy. And I might just note the one part sentence there, part of their goals, to understand, protect, develop, and participate in the governance of the Arctic. So what is the Chinese interest in the Arctic? Obviously, in part, it's the natural resources that are in the Arctic. Witness the partnership that I was just talking about with Russia in terms of LNG. I think it's also because China recognizes that as this new region emerges, and some would say it has already emerged, that it is a place where there's a lot of opportunity that has not yet been fully appreciated. And so they have built now, they have their second icebreaker. The first one, the Snow Dragon, uh, was in the Arctic in 2017 and 2018. Uh, the new one, the, the uh, Snow Dragon 2, will be up in the Arctic soon. So they're doing a lot of research. They're trying to understand the Arctic. They are participating in international conferences. And they are reaching interesting mm, partnerships, not just with Russia, but with Norway and with Iceland and with Greenland in terms of research partnerships. And I think ultimately in their uh, minds, the opportunity to do business. So let's go back to Russia because Russia is really the big kahuna here. Um, I think it's very important to understand why statements like this by Vladimir Putin make sense from a Russian perspective. This map demonstrates how much of the Arctic is Russian territory. And sometimes we forget that. As a matter of fact, as Alaskans, sometimes we think Alaska is a pretty big place in the Arctic. We are a big state. But when you look at the Arctic and realize how much of Russian coastline, how much of their resources, how much of their population actually lives in the north, I don't think it's terribly surprising, frankly, that Russia is investing in the north. However, having said that, yes, we understand they're investing in the Northern Sea Route in terms of ports and a whole lot of infrastructure. But the additional investment in their military in the North has raised a lot of questions and some concerns. And we've certainly seen a buildup in the North. This slide that was done by Senator Dan Sullivan's office kind of uh, highlights some of the Russian military buildup in the Arctic that is of concern, uh, particularly as they have also been doing exercises in the north. But exactly what is the motive? Is, is the motive to protect their coastline? Is the motive to make sure that their LNG tankers get safely? Uh, is it to generate more business for the northern sea route? Because they, of course, charge a fee for icebreaker escorts. Um, is it positioning in terms of global power relationships? I mean, there are a lot of questions that there aren't really good answers to, but I would say that their near neighbors uh, get nervous. Sweden has reinstituted 
mandatory military conscription, for example. And there are concerns. Uh, I think that's partially why the Trident Juncture, NATO's biggest exercise in decades, which was held last fall uh, in Norway with 31 nations participating, 50,000 people participated. All of our military led by the Navy participated. It was a NATO exercise in Norway. Matter of fact, when I was in Norway last week, there were still 650 Marines in Norway training, uh, trying to test equipment, trying to work together across borders in a way that sends the signal that NATO and other nations are prepared, if needed, to do work in the Arctic. This is a picture of a conference, actually it was a workshop in DC two weeks ago that I was able to attend at the National Defense University. It was basically representatives from all of our branches of the military really focused on this question, what are the security concerns in the Arctic? What are our national security issues? What are our international relation issues? What is our preparedness, our readiness, our ability, if needed, to actually do anything in the Arctic. That is in addition to what we are now seeing in terms of the buildup of military assets in Alaska. This is a pretty long list, and I'm not going to read it to you, but if you look at how many fifth generation fighter jets are going to be in Alaska, if you look at the amount of money that is rolling into military construction in Alaska, it's pretty impressive. And again, how much of this is building up our military capacity vis-a-vis -vis North Korea, Russia? Who knows? All I know is that if you put together a number of pieces of the puzzle, like the increased attention being paid by the Department of Defense in terms of security issues in the North, and you look at the investment that is being made now, in Alaska, uh, you can begin to see that it's not just Russia, it's not just NATO, it's not just Sweden, it's not just Norway, it's all of us, even though the Arctic has been a place of great cooperation, there is competition and there is the feeling that you don't know what's coming next and maybe we need to prepare. Well, in one way we are not preparing and that is in the icebreaker arena. And this is a topic for many Alaskans that you've heard a lot. But, you know, Russia has a lot of icebreakers. Um, Finland, a country of five million people, has, you know, they have more icebreakers than the U.S. does. And it's not just how many do you have. You know, we, it's, it's what kind of condition are they in. So we used to have two heavy icebreakers, Polar Star and Polar Sea. Uh, the Polar Sea is now just being used for parts. Uh, to keep the Polar Star running. That ship primarily services Antarctica. And we have the Healy, which is a medium icebreaker, which is basically the workhorse for the Arctic. These ships are decades old and should have been replaced quite a long time ago. We also have the Sekuliak, by the way, which is an ice-strengthened research vessel which is based in Seward, which is great for research, but it's not, a, it's not an icebreaker. Um, and we need our icebreakers. We need our icebreakers for search and rescue, for military response if needed, for research, all, for all of those reasons. So it is one space where I think we all need to continue to advocate a replacement and addition to our, our icebreakers. So all right, I've been talking about 
conflict, military buildup, Russia, China. I want to transition to something that might make you feel better before you leave tonight, and that is how much cooperation there is in the Arctic. And there is a lot of cooperation, and there's been a lot of cooperation actually for a very long time. This is just a short list of some of the things that illustrate how well the Arctic Eight have really gotten along for a very long period of time. The Arctic Council's been around for oh, over 22 years, and it is really a place where the Arctic nations have found common ground on not only environmental protection, but also sustainable development. And these reports that have been written, the research that's been done, the recommendations that have been offered, the way in which it has really created a bonding in the Arctic has been a very good thing. And of course, in addition to the member countries, the permanent participants representing the indigenous people of the North and the observers, both observer nations and observer organizations, have really helped build the strength and capacity of the Arctic Council. And I think, unlike many international organizations, the indigenous people of the North have really had a very active and meaningful place in terms of participating in all of the working groups, the task forces, and the recommendations. Several agreements have come out of the Arctic Council process. Search and rescue, oil spill response, international cooperation of research. All of those things, again, are no-brainers in terms of what you want the countries in a region to be able to do together, work together, and plan together. And that gave rise to something that is really important. Our Coast Guards cooperate with each other, and they actually do drills together, which again is pretty important if you're talking about a growth in tourism or even oil and gas and having to respond to a spill. The Polar Code, which was adopted by the International Maritime Organization, sets higher standards for ships that are operating in the Arctic. Again, that just became effective uh, in 2017. It is a huge step forward, and it, again, came out of a lot of support from the Arctic Council and the, the nations that have said, you know, we want to reduce risk. We want to work together. If we're going to use this space, we have to do it wisely. And this one is really an amazing story. The new fisheries agreement that not only the Arctic nations have agreed to, but in addition to that, South Korea, China, Japan, and the EU have agreed that they will not fish in the central Arctic Ocean for 16 years because we don't know enough about what's there to be able to sustainably manage a fishery. This is a beautiful example, a textbook case of what is called the precautionary principle, where you put in place a conservation measure before there's a disaster instead of after it. This is pretty amazing, actually. Not a lot of examples that one can point to in this day and age, this is something that, again, really came out of the kind of cooperation and sense of we're in this together as a result of the work of the Arctic Council over the years. International scientific cooperation for some people seems like, well, what, is that really that important? Yes, it is, because it's really important that countries work together to understand what's happening in the Arctic and what kind of things like the fisheries agreement need to be done to protect this very vulnerable and valuable place. It's a huge area, and no one country can begin to afford or 
have the ability to do the research that's necessary in the region alone. So this kind of international cooperation is really important. There have been two science ministerials. I've been at both of them as a delegate for the US. And I would just say that we've, we've really made progress. The last one was in Berlin in October, and there were 25 nations of the world committing to the, not only the resources, but joint projects that really help us improve our understanding of the Arctic. This is KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media, and you're listening to Addressing Alaskans. We're hearing from the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, Fran Ulmer, giving her presentation titled, After the Arctic Ice Melts. Later in the show, we'll hear a piece from KZMU Moab Public Radio about the warming Arctic's far-reaching effects on ecosystems. We continue with Fran Ulmer answering questions from the audience. Earlier, you briefly mentioned the fiscal impact of the fisheries. And uh, one thing I was wondering about, if you were familiar enough with that model, um, the hypothesis that a lot of fishermen, specifically the drifters off the Kenai had, on the temperature of the water levels and the impact of that with fish diving underneath their nets, uh, if you might have any familiarity with that. So this week in Anchorage, the Alaska Marine Science Symposium has been going on every day, um, all day, at the Captain Cook. And it has been one science presentation after another, kind of rapid fire, about the changes in the Bering Sea, the Chukchi, the Beaufort, um, the extent to which the water temperatures, the extent to which salinity changes, the extent to which all these things are happening very quickly and in surprising ways. And I, I would just say that the combination of changes that are happening in salinity, in water temperature, in currents, in the entire ecosystem of the waters around Alaska make it very difficult to say anything clean cut about why one thing happens and thus something else is the result, if you know what I mean. The complexity now of what is happening in terms of the rapid rate of change that is being experienced, particularly in the north, leaves a lot of work to be done by the science community, but also um, I would say, and I, not, this is not necessarily true for all of the presentations I heard today, but also the sense that what we know today is going to be dramatically changed tomorrow because of the interaction of all of these changes dramatically altering the ecosystems that we used to consider as relatively stable. So for the fishing industry, I think this has really big implications. We know that many species are moving north. We've seen this not just in the Western Arctic, but also in the Eastern Arctic. And so the cod species, um, you know, Iceland has had a tremendous boom in fisheries over the last two or three years, cod and mackerel, because of the northern movement of, of fish. So how to predict this in a way that really helps you if you're in the fishing industry make decisions about what species you're targeting or what gear you're going to use or even whether or not you will be able to commercial fish the way you've always commercial fished five or ten years from now there is so much uncertainty i guess is what i'm trying to say um, 
The, the presentations from the uh, Marine Science Symposium are available online for those of you who really want to take a deeper dive in some of the, the heavy science, I would recommend that you go there. And the other place I'd recommend is going to AUS, the Arctic Ocean Observing System that Molly McCammon is the head of. They have a lot of information on their website about ocean acidification, about water temperature data and salinity data, and some of the preliminary results in terms of the improved understanding about how these changes might affect fisheries. Thank you for the presentation. It was wonderful. Um, it's a complex area, and you presented a lot of different pieces of what's going on in the Arctic. Um, so how would you grade the current administration and its focus on the Arctic region, and are they putting enough importance? During the previous administration, let's just kind of look at a few of the things that indicated a focus on the Arctic. So in 2013, the U.S. adopted its very first Arctic strategy. In 2014, the U.S. adopted a strategic plan to basically move that strategy forward. In 2015, the administration created the Arctic Executive Steering Committee, which was a way of coordinating all of the cabinet officials that had any jurisdiction in the Arctic to talk to each other, meet quarterly, and do deliverables together. In 2016, I, I could go on. You get the picture here. There was, there was an increasing attention paid and mechanisms to really focus the power and energy and authorities, not much money, but at least attention on the Arctic as a strategic region. And the strategy talked about national security, international cooperation, and stewardship of the Arctic resources. Those were the three big planks associated with that strategy. That strategy still technically exists. It has not been you know, erased somehow. It's still there. But for the last two years, there has not really been any substantial progress that one can see on moving any of that agenda forward. The exception to what I've just said is in some agencies, like the Coast Guard, like the Navy, where there are efforts underway to at least try to use whatever resources they do have to make some progress. So, you know, the Coast Guard did a study about icebreakers and what it would take. They, they, they moved that forward. They worked with the Navy. The Navy actually helped them with that study. And there was uh, money in the budget. You know, that, that was progress. But you're right, the money that was in the budget is now being put into the wall instead of the icebreaker category, right? So. So kind of a tiny step forward, but then maybe a step back at the same time. But this meeting that I went to two weeks ago in DC with really high level representation from the Department of Defense and all of the branches of the military plus Alaska National Guard and the Coast Guard talking about the strategic importance of the Arctic, trying to discuss at a more detailed level what kind of exercises are required? What kind of new cooperation with our partners in the North are necessary? I mean, I think the Department of Defense gets it. And I think our military gets it. I think there has been a shortage of commitment of funding. And you're absolutely right. I mean, our congressional delegation has begged for icebreakers for a long time. As a matter of fact, 
for a long time, our congressional delegation pushed pretty hard to try to get the Law of the Sea Treaty ratified. Um, you know, Senator Stevens worked hard on that. Uh, but it's just really hard to get the attention of people in the lower 48. I mean, I, I don't want to be overly critical here, but other Arctic nations tend to think of themselves as Arctic nations. They have an identity. I mean, Canada thinks of itself as an Arctic nation. Russia certainly does. Norway, Sweden, Finland, Iceland, they think of themselves as an Arctic nation. You know, if, if you go have coffee with some folks in Iowa, I don't think they're going to say, yeah, US is an Arctic nation. You know, it's kind of not really that much part of our identity. And so for a, for a lot of people, and particularly people who are in control of the budget, um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's that important. And, you know, some people say, well, it's, um, it's inevitable at some point there will be an incident, and an incident, whatever that is, whether it's military, national security, oil spill, shipping disaster, tourist boat, you know, going down, whatever, that maybe there will be an incident that makes the U.S. sort of stand up and say, once again, we are an Arctic nation and we have to invest in the region. But why do we have to wait for bad things to happen? You know, I mean, this is so clear to people, I think, who spend just a moment thinking about it, that getting ahead of this and preparing and having the, <clears throat> the assets needed, assets like icebreakers, but not just icebreakers, telecommunications, um, assets like doing the necessary work to bring the Arctic waters up to international shipping or navigational standards. I mean, only 10% of the Arctic has been charted to international navigational standards. I mean, that's an accident waiting to happen. So there are a lot of things that we need to do and we should do. And, and if we you know, had the will, we would have done already, I guess. So uh, I wish I had a really good ask of you all in terms of helping to make this happen. About the best ask I can come up with is, as you are curious about this and as you learn more, as you think more, as you talk to your friends and neighbors, and particularly as you talk to people in powerful places, whether that's in the private sector or the public sector, when you talk to people in the lower 48, your friends, your relatives, people you used to work with who, have, you know, live, who live outside, talk to them about the Arctic. Try to help them understand that this valuable, vulnerable region, which is critical to the future of not only the US, but the world, is a place that they need to pay more attention to and invest in. So with that, I will say thank you all very much for coming. Good night. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. We just heard from the chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, Fran Ulmer. We're going to shift gears now and hear a piece from KZMU Moab Public Radio about the warming Arctic's far-reaching effects on global ecosystems. This is Science Moab. 
a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and on today's show, we leave the Colorado Plateau and take a broader view of ecosystems and processes that are being influenced by climate change. It's a good show. Stay with us. Tundra swans and sandhill cranes actually spend a significant portion of their life in Utah and the surrounding area, as well as up in the Arctic. Even though these species we might not necessarily consider as desert species or intermountain west species, they are affected by processes that are happening thousands of miles away in the Arctic. Today on Science Moab, we're speaking with Ryan Choi about the influence that climate change has on the interactions that occur within ecosystems. Ryan is a PhD student at Utah State University. There, Ryan studies how climate change changes interactions between plants and the species that eat them up in the Arctic. Specifically, he looks at how warming temperatures influence when grasses grow above the Arctic Circle and how changes to that timing of growth impacts the migrating geese that rely on those grasses year after year. This mismatched timing is known as a trophic mismatch. And we begin our interview with Ryan defining what a trophic mismatch means for ecosystems. So a trophic mismatch is what happens when two species, oftentimes a consumer and a producer, fall out of sync in terms of when they are supposed to overlap. So when consumers, oftentimes herbivores, feed on their primary resources, plants, there needs to be a overlap in time. But if the plants come online early or these resources aren't available at the time when consumers need them, that's when we might have a trophic mismatch. And it's going to impact herbivores at the higher trophic level, at the population level, or even at the community level, or the ecosystem level. Remind us what a trophic level is exactly. Sure. So ecosystems and food webs are comprised of different trophic levels, starting from the green plants that take up sun. They're the primary base trophic level. And then species that feed on these primary producers are consumers. So herbivores, things like Deer and insects are oftentimes considered primary consumers at the the next highest trophic level. And then species that feed on or prey upon those primary consumers are the second trophic level and so on and so on as you work up through a food web. And so a trophic mismatch, again, is then when the timing of these different trophic levels aren't matching. Exactly. Can you give me some examples in the real world about what that really looks like? One example of trophic mismatch that's happening has to do with climate change and how climate change is affecting the timing and availability of resources 
for species that rely on them. Specifically, for my my research is looking at how climate change is impacting and altering the timing of plants in the Arctic and the implications that has for long-distance migrating geese that travel thousands of miles to the Arctic to feed on these plant resources. So not only is climate change altering the seasonal patterns and timing and availability of the seasons and of plants, but also it seems to be impacting the timing and synchronization of long-distance migrations. So when birds migrate, they're often triggered by photo period or day length, how much daylight there is in the day as winter rolls around and spring shows up, the days start getting longer. And that triggers these internal cues for birds to undertake these mind-boggling long-distance migrations, hundreds, thousands of miles across the globe. As the birds are migrating along their flyways, they're tracking and moving with food resources what is known as following the green wave effect. They spend time in the tropics, they'll start moving northward, following their resources, and the shift of plants and resources during the springtime. And as they move north, then they continue moving on their flyway until they eventually get to their summer breeding grounds, wherever that happens to be. So in our system, Pacific Black Brant, they spend their winters in Mexico, in the estuary bays of of coastal Mexico and California, all the way up to Puget Sound. And they travel thousands of miles to the Yukon Delta um, in southwestern coastal Alaska, which is a destination breeding ground for over a million migratory birds and geese because it's a highly productive ecosystem that is coastal tundra and uh, a great place to raise their young and and build goslings and, and ducklings. But one of the reasons why they travel such a long distance is because their primary food resource, this Carex species, it's a sedge, that is really high in nitrogen and also very productive and is relatively abundant on the coast. And they can spend their entire summers grazing and putting on fat stores and replenishing energy supplies after flying thousands of miles in the springtime and building up their fat reserves for their long migration south. However, if climate change is affecting the productivity and timing of when their primary forage resources are available, um, it's likely that they might not necessarily be as nutritious. And because geese are not really efficient digesters, they have a very inefficient digestive system, it would require more time for them to spend foraging on these resources and less time resting up for their long migration south. And so that can in turn lead to long-term declines in their population. Are there consequences of this trophic mismatch that could be affecting the, the greater ecosystem at large? Yes, it's a very high possibility. And so one of the things that we're looking at is how this mismatch and timing of birds and their resources have implications for the broader ecosystem, impacts such as uh, changes in release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, how much carbon is taken up by plants and stored in above ground biomass, how much is stored below ground, and then also implications for nitrogen inputs and nitrogen turnover in this coastal ecosystem. Break that down for me a little bit. How could the late or early arrival of migratory geese influence carbon? Ah, So plants are primary producers, and they are really good at pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, using photosynthesis, pulling in carbon dioxide, and turning that into 
plant tissue and sugars and storing that in their above ground structures as well as their root structures. So the Arctic is also the largest store of carbon on the planet. Something like over about 50% of the world's carbon is stored in below ground soils. And so with climate change, uh, one of the big concerns is that with melting and thawing permafrost, we're going to see greater release of this stored carbon into the atmosphere. And so it's this balance and exchange between increased growth and production by plants and how much carbon they're able to store, but also how much carbon is going to be released by warming temperatures and thawing permafrost. So how do the geese play into that? The geese that we study are grazers. They're herbivores and will spend most of their summers foraging and grazing and clipping vegetation and turning that into uh, goose biomass. And they have the ability to remove these plant tissues and alter how much carbon is stored in the vegetation. In addition to just removing above ground tissues, they also trample the ground with their little web feet and also poop all over the landscape. They're uh, eating food, then they're definitely pooping food. And that has consequences for how much is uh, returned to the environment through leaching and off-gassing as well. And so what does the timing of when the geese arrive, how does that influence these cycles, the carbon and nitrogen that you're talking about? (laughs) With climate change, it's becoming, uh, there's just a lot of variability in terms of in your annual predictability, like when spring is occurring year after year after year. And the long-term trends are showing that springtime is advancing and has actually advanced several weeks over the last several decades. Since if geese are unable to track this timing of when their resources are available, they have the potential to arrive late into a system that is where the grass is taller, but maybe less nutritious. But there's also the possibility that they might arrive too early if there's just this increased stochasticity and variability in the timing. And if they arrive too early, the plants might not necessarily have started growing and they could overgraze the vegetation or destroy it, have the potential to destroy it, trying to get the resources they need once they show up after flying thousands of miles. And that can have long-term consequences for both the vegetation and the geese populations themselves. And the carbon. And the carbon, yeah. Are these trophic mismatches currently occurring, or are these things that are expected to occur in the future under climate change? Uh, Both, actually. Uh, Climate change is happening now and affecting the dynamics between species and the timing of these interactions uh, at these different trophic levels. And we do expect this phenomenon to continue to occur in the future and further drive wedges between species. Your example was of a species that's migrating, or is that really the main type of species that are going to be affected by these trophic mismatches, or does it not need to be a migratory species? Um, That's a good question. The system that I'm studying is looking at impact of long-distance migrants, particularly because they are very vulnerable to this trophic mismatch because they start their migrations thousands of miles away. The species that we look at, the Pacific black brant, they spend their winters down in Mexico, but then they spend their summer breeding period in Alaska. And so cues that might be altering their migration patterns in the subtropics have ramifications and impacts for these species by the time they get to Alaska. But it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. You could have trophic mismatches locally if 
species just aren't able to adapt to rapidly occurring changes in their home range. Um, how do you study trophic mismatches? You have to set up experiments where you can manipulate the variables in question. And so with our experiment, we are using open top chambers, these acrylic passive solar warming chambers to increase the ambient temperature of the ground and to stimulate growth by vegetation earlier in the season. And if you compare that to plots that don't receive that treatment, then we can sort of tease apart the impacts of earlier phenology or the earlier growing season. In addition to the advanced growing season, we're also able to manipulate when the geese are grazing on these plots. And so by setting up these fenced exclosures, and I go out and trap a couple dozen geese every year and uh, herd them around the tundra and place them on the plots and control when they actually graze on these plots. And we can look at what the effects are if they arrive too early, arrive at a normal time, or if they arrive late, or if they don't arrive at all. If they change their migration patterns, if they don't decide to migrate elsewhere or don't migrate as far south, or just decide to stop continuing using this particular location that they have for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Why is studying these trophic mismatches important? Climate change is a tricky thing to study. We don't entirely know what all the consequences are going to be in the future. It's really important for us to use these experiments and use the scientific method to tease apart these complex interactions between species and get at the impacts that they might have on the broader ecosystem. The world is a complicated place, but everything is connected together. And if you tug on one strand, that has the potential to affect things hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. But it takes a lot of different experiments. It takes a lot of different scientists to break up this really complex question and address different aspects of climate change in order for us to have a, a more complete understanding of the impacts of climate change globally. Uh, are there trophic mismatches that are potentially going to influence drylands and the systems around here in Moab? Most definitely. The Colorado Plateau is a, an incredible ecosystem, um, one that's characterized by a lack of water. Water really defines where life can occur and thrive um, in this arid and oftentimes extreme environment. And unfortunately, water only occurs during certain times of the year, uh, either a snowpack during the wintertime or oftentimes more so during the summer monsoons. With climate change and predicted models of climate change, it's expected that we're likely to see greater periods of drought and altered precipitation patterns. Like if rain doesn't necessarily occur when it's supposed to, species that are completely reliant on this availability of water are going to be impacted. Species like uh, bighorn sheep, native Colorado river fishes, or even the native shrubs and plant species on the Colorado Plateau and biological soils as well. Do any of the geese that you study stop in Utah? Uh, this, Unfortunately not. The Pacific black brant are uh, exclusively a coastal goose. They spend their time on the Pacific coast and flying up and down the coast. And so it's very unlikely that a Pacific brant has ever come through Moab. But other Arctic species spend time in the lower 48 in this uh, particular region. Species like tundra swans 
or sandhill cranes actually spend a significant portion of their life in Utah in the surrounding area and as well as up in the Arctic. And so even though these species we might not necessarily consider as desert species or intermountain west species, they are affected by processes that are happening thousands of miles away in the Arctic. How did you get interested in studying climate change's influence on ecosystems? I believe that climate change is the single most important thing that we need to be studying at this point in time. Uh, We're experiencing shifts in environmental conditions and the environment that we we have not seen um, at this magnitude. And so it's a really pressing issue to conduct these studies at this point in time. For me, as a long-distance thru-hiker, having spent large periods of time out in the wilderness walking across the country through a number of different ecosystems and environments, I've seen the impacts of climate change firsthand. Droughts in the West, increased fire in our national forests, and shifts in species distributions and For me personally, as someone who enjoys spending time in the outdoors, as well as a scientist, I find it really important to spend the time to figure out how to better protect and better predict what's going to happen to our natural resources. And what do you enjoy about being a scientist? I like the fact that we can ask these really interesting questions and then go out into the natural world and use science to answer them and to contribute to our better understanding of the, of the natural world and the processes. In my opinion, there isn't a better job out there. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for this interview. It's been so great to talk to you about your research. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. You can listen to this episode with Ryan Choi again or hear any of our past episodes at kzmu.org or on iTunes or Stitcher. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies. Theme music is by Jeremy Spalding, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU. You just heard Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Earlier in the program, we heard from Fran Ulmer, chair of the U.S. Arctic Research Commission and former lieutenant governor of Alaska. Her presentation was called After the Arctic Ice Melts and was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. It was recorded at 49th State Brewing Company on January 31st. We finished up the hour with a piece from KZMU Moab Public Radio about how the warming Arctic can affect global ecosystems. If you missed part of this show or want to hear more like this, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. We had production help from Eric Bork. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.